1: Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me
2: every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Uh, I'm going to say no one's better than me. Yeah,
1: let's go. Blow up.
2: We are here to finish the ultimate AFC East crossover here on the Locked On Network. I am host Kyle Krabs from the Locked On Dolphins podcast, joined by Mike DeBate of Locked On Patriots, Joe Marino of Locked On Bills, and John Butchko of Locked On Jets. And we have been spending this entire week working our way through each team, specifically in the AFC East, getting impressions. You know, that's saying keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Well, we're we're real close this week here on the AFC East crossover. Uh, today, we're talking about the Miami Dolphins, who finished last in the division in 2019. They started the year 0-7, and it was about as ugly as you could possibly imagine. There was narratives of tanking and calls for the competition committee to get involved and investigate the patri or to investigate the Dolphins. Sorry, Mike. It's just a natural reaction to assume we're investigating the Patriots. Yeah,
0: and- <laughs> I have a feeling that wasn't really a Freudian slip there, Kyle.
2: <laughs> but the Dolphins turned it around over the last nine games. They actually posted a winning record five and four over their final nine games. Once Brian Flores was able to establish some momentum and really helped to build a positive team culture. They followed suit with almost $100 million in cap space and three first-round picks in this year's NFL draft. The direction that they have chosen to go is a fascinating one. They drafted Tua Tungvalu with the number five overall pick in the 2020 NFL draft, and many of the moves that they have made on both sides of the football indicate they're a team. That wants to play multiple on the defensive side of the football, a very New England Patriots style defense. They're coveting the secondary over pass rush. And on the offensive side of the ball, they're going to try to emulate a lot of what Tua had at his disposal at Alabama with a power run game, all RPO heavy. They're going to give Tua the chance to be the successful quarterback he was doing the same concepts he did at college. A novel idea, giving a, a player a chance to do what he does best, to best have ch- chances for success. Whether or not that materializes is up in the air due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the lack of rookie camps, OTAs. Every team is starting from square one in training camp. We've lost time. And how that impacts the Dolphins is going to be a big storyline for 2020. Well, what I'd like to do now is talk to each one of my co-hosts on today's show about their own teams and their own rebuilding processes before we talk about how the Dolphins sit amongst this division in 2020. So I'm going to start with Mike. Mike, thanks for joining me today. And I want to ask you, looking at the Patriots, obviously so much success over the past two decades, but they, having lost Tom Brady this offseason – Having lost Dante Skarnacki this offseason, their offensive line coach, a lot of overhaul. They saw some of their defenders head down south to join Miami and the Dolphins' defense. But this team, you know, they were kind of strapped for cash this offseason. And they managed to get Cam Newton on a very team-friendly deal. And all of a sudden, this team opens up into a ton of cap space next year. And they have always been a team that covets drafting by volume. What is the expectation for the Patriots as they continue to progress beyond this year, and what are the chances we see them drastically shift and pivot their team and roster identity to extend their winning window beyond just a win now mentality?
0: Yeah, one thing about the New England Patriots, Kyle. And uh, first of all, uh, your "keep your friends close, enemies uh, closer" quote from The Godfather. I'll uh, I'll let that uh, kind of uh, I I'll, I'll let that slide considering the uh, the crack that you made against the Patriots investigation. But no, I I'm kidding folks. I only kid. Uh but no in every in any case, uh one thing with the Patriots is they always have one eye on the present, two eyes on the future, regardless of what moves that they're making. And I think you're seeing that in a lot of ways in which they're building their team this year. Look, there's no question about it. 2020 will still have the Patriots looking to their defense as their primary strength of the team. I say that even knowing that Cam Newton is going to be their likely starter in 2020. It's still the foundation of the way the Patriots do business. You mentioned the Miami Dolphins taking on a more Patriots-centric defensive approach in building the secondary. I was impressed by what Miami did with the secondary this year. Uh, Bringing in Byron Jones obviously is a huge part of that. He's probably one of the more uh, prolific free agent options that were available at the time. And Miami pairing him with Xavier Howard, I think gives a good solid addition to that cornerback team and, you know, their safety position as well. You also have guys, you know, you know, that are capable of playing those swing roles. So in a lot of ways, I think the Patriots will continue to build on a very strong secondary they boast the 2019 uh, Defensive Player of the Year in Stephon Gilmore. You have J.C. Jackson, who, in my opinion, is one of the more underrated players across the board in the NFL. He'll be a solid uh, you know, uh, contributor to this team this year. Their safety position is still one that I think is among the best in the league when it comes to Patrick Chung, Devin McCourty. I sang the praises of Adrian Phillips on Monday here when we talked about the Patriots' prowess. I think the secondary still remains a big part of their team. Where they may choose to invest some of this capital that is sort of flush now in New England is along the defensive line, the interior of the, uh, of the defensive line, and also uh, the linebacking core, which I believe could use a good uh, maybe a one or two savvy veterans that can come in and know how to play this system. Look, guys like Dietrich Wise, Derek Rivers have had opportunities to excel or had opportunities to uh, essentially contribute in this defense. They haven't really found that. And I think both of those guys are going to be on the roster bubble this year. Uh, The Patriots definitely took a little bit of a step back in the interior with the loss of Danny Shelton. Bo Allen coming in should be able to at least be a stopgap in that uh, regard. But I think you may see them regress in terms of what they're playing this year. So would not shock me to see them maybe switch to four, three at times. They were very three, four heavy last year with those athletic linebackers that could step up, play the, uh, the interior, but could also step back and maybe even play in the secondary if they needed to. I think they lost a little bit of the athleticism, losing guys like Jamie Collins and Kyle Van Noy, who is down in Miami. Now, I think those could uh, change the complexities of this team on offense. I think you're going to see the Patriots try to envision what this team could be like under Cam Newton for the long haul. They have a great amount of flexibility with Cam. That deal that they signed him to is very low risk. Uh, essentially committing a $1 million worth of cap space for a, a, a one-year deal. And if for any reason it doesn't work out or the Patriots decide that they really like what they have in Jarrett Stidham moving forward and that Cam has been able to bridge the gap nicely to him, then they can cut that loose and not really uh, you know, take too much of a hit. On the other hand, if Cam comes in and plays the way I think he's capable of playing and the way most people think he's capable of playing, This could be a longer-term solution at the quarterback position than people think. Cam's only 31, can play at a high level. We've seen him do it several times. So if that's the case, then you're going to want to invest in players that can really make him the best possible quarterback that you can. If that's the case, I look for them to maybe bring in another tight end uh, down the line. Uh, Cam is very uh, you know, adept at being able to throw to tight ends. Greg Olson in Carolina was one of his favorite uh, uh, targets. I think you may see them invest in maybe extending some of the guys in the running game. This is going to be a big prove-it year for Sony Michelle, whether or not he's capable of being a feature back or whether or not a guy like Damian Harris, who essentially redshirted last year, is going to be able to come in. They have some cap flexibilities now. They're going to be committing likely. um, And at the time that we're recording this, it's still likely that Joe Tooney will play under the 14.78 million dollar franchise tag on the offensive line. That's something they're going to need to invest in, especially with a new quarterback like Cam or maybe even Jarrett down the line. You have to invest in the offensive line, especially with Dante Scarnecchia being absent from that coaching staff. And we talked about Dante yesterday. That's going to be a big part of what they need to do. So, again, I think the Patriots are going to invest as they always have. I wouldn't look for the big blockbuster type name, but the right players that can fit into this system And quite honestly, Miami fans, I would get used to it because I think that's the approach that you're going to see Brian Flores take. I think you've already seen him take it a little bit. And the Miami Brain Trust is going to adapt that. It's going to serve them well. They've got a great nucleus down in Miami. I see a lot of a younger New England team there. And I'm not saying that derisively or I'm not saying that uh, to be pretentious. I'm saying it's simply because it's a system that's worked for 20 years. And if Miami can figure out a way to harness that, uh, they're looking at a great number of success for a great number of years.
2: Yeah, I think Brian Flores is the right mix of putting his own personality and spin on his locker room while adhering to even Chris Greer having some exposures to the Patriots and their style of team building, uh, kind of that drafting by volume. And when you have opportunities to avoid spending and, and you know capitalizing on the compensatory pick formula and and kind of turning that into an additional cash cow, which we've seen the Patriots do better than anybody. And I mean, how many third round picks are they doing from compensatory picks because they didn't spend big to open free agency this year? It's at least two or three. So, you know, those kinds of extra picks uh, is definitely one area where you see the overlap and the ideology between what the Patriots have done for so long and how you're probably going to continue to see the, the Dolphins do it as Chris Greer and Brian Flores put their stamp on this team. Joe, I'd like to transition to you. Because I think there's interesting parallels uh, amongst each of the AFC East teams to the Dolphins and how the Dolphins are electing to build their program. But I look at the Buffalo Bills and they got a two-year head start on their rebuild versus the Dolphins. But I see a lot of similarities between how they have chosen to attack rebuilding their roster in the early years of their rebuild. And I'm curious what your insight is as you now having been several years into your rebuild and experiencing what that success looks like and making the postseason last year and two out of three years under Sean McDermott and compare and contrast that to what you're seeing down in South Florida with just one year of this rebuild under the Dolphins belt.
3: Yeah, you know, Kyle, I think there are a ton of parallels and I think it starts at the starting point who Sean McDermott and Brian Flores replaced. And we're going back to Rex Ryan and Adam Gase and both situations that ended poorly and situations that needed a lot of repair and a lot of controversial roster construction when it came to both Gase and and Ryan. And so, you know, picking up those pieces uh, start from a very similar point, in my view. And then you think about the guys that were hired, right? The NFL is out there hiring looking for offensive innovators, right? Uh, You you see Matt LaFleur and Sean McVay and uh, Cliff Kingsbury. And, you you know, everybody's an offensive guy. Kevin Stefanski, offensive guy. Well, not the Bills and Dolphins. They went out and got defensive minded head coaches and Sean McDermott and Brian Flores, who, you know, obviously they have a great track record of defensive success from their, you know, their resumes before they got their head coaching gigs. But, you know, what they really shine or the area that they really shine is in terms of leadership and being the CEO of a football team and uh, establishing culture and and being selective about the personnel that you bring in and that they have the right DNA and buy in to create this, this locker room and this environment where guys want to go and be the best version of themselves. And they buy in and they care about their teammates and they want to perform at their, at their peak, not just for their own their own careers, but because they care about the people in the building and and it's this wonderful culture. And so I think like from the roots of the, of where they, the teams both launched from, I think there's a lot of parallels right there, but then you start thinking about, all right, well the bills go into their first season under Sean McDermott and, I'm sure you guys remember that there was a, a day where they traded away Sammy Watkins and Ronald Darby, literally on the same exact day. And then, the, you know, shortly thereafter, they're trading away Reggie Ragland and Marcel Darius, high, high picks that, that, that were key pieces of the roster. And, and they started trading them away and, and acquiring uh, draft capital. And, um you know, the, the tank word was used with the bills going into Uh, was year one under Sean McDermott. And, you know, the Bills tanked their way to nine and seven in a playoff berth, just like the Miami Dolphins tanked their way to a winning record over their last nine games. Right. So you can see that parallel uh, existing. And then after the season, the Bills traded away Tyrod Taylor and Cordy Glenn and positioned themselves to draft their quarterback of the future in Josh Allen, just like, the Dolphins have done with Tua and Now, fortunately for the Dolphins, they didn't have to trade away a left tackle and multiple day two picks to move up for their quarterback. So that kind of worked out. Uh, you should thank Joe Burrow for being such a good player and and, and allowing uh, Tua to be there at number five. But, uh, you know, I, I think you can draw those parallels. And then also just kind of, you know, not that there's a lot of schematic uh, consistency between the Bills and Dolphins. I think they run very different offenses and defenses, but, What I can tell you about both teams is they both have emphasized building the secondary, just like the New England Patriots. And, you know, first order of business for Sean McDermott, the two of the first players that were signed when he was hired as head coach were Jordan Poyer and and Micah Hyde, who have become one of the best safety tandems in the league. And really, I think the key to the Buffalo defense in terms of what they're able to do in disguise and coverage and how consistent they are. They drafted Tredavious White with the number one pick and Meanwhile, you see the Miami Dolphins, they have Xavier Howard, who's one of the best corners in football, and they go give money, big money to Byron Jones. And they drafted Noah Igbenogany in the first round. And, you know, they're, they added Eric Rowe and they moved Bobby McCain back to safety. And you can tell it's important to them to have these pieces in the secondary, just like the bills. And so, you know, Kyle, I I think it's interesting to, to, to bring up this parallel because maybe it's under discussed, but in reality, There are a lot of of, uh, similarities in in, uh, philosophy when it comes to what the Bills and Dolphins have done. They're just obviously at different points uh, as we enter the 2020 season.
2: And John, I want to shift this conversation over to you. Uh, We spoke yesterday when talking about where the Jets and Dolphins stack up in the AFC East versus... Uh, the, the Bills and Patriots, and, and it, the consensus was there is a divide there for teams that are ready to win now and teams that are not ready to win now. What's interesting to me about the Jets and the Jets' position as a team and as a roster and as an organization is the Dolphins have a clear buy-in from everybody in the organization that all came in at the same time and all had familiarity with one another which led to this aggressive rebuild and buy-in from everybody within the organization. You compare and contrast that to what happened in New York when they had a head coaching change. They struck out on a couple of their first attempts to hire uh, because they wanted—I believe—they wanted to keep Greg Williams on as defensive coordinator of the staff, and they settled on Adam Gase to become the head coach. After that first uh, free agent window, they fire Mike Mcagnan. And Joe Douglas comes in and runs his first draft. So you're, you saw the head coach and the GM come in at different time periods for the team. When you project the Jets forward from here, how big of a concern is it that if Adam Gase doesn't materialize, Joe Douglas is going to want to obviously not just pick his head coach, but continue to imprint his own vision for the team that marries better with that head coach? versus having everybody who came in at the same time and is moving in the same direction?
4: I think that there are a lot of questions about the near-term future of the New York Jets, and there is a big factor out there that people don't discuss frequently, but right now their owner, Woody Johnson, is the United States's ambassador to the United Kingdom, and And this is not a political statement. People have said no matter how the election turns out, he's probably going to come back to the United States to start running the Jets again at the end of 2020. So now you'll have Woody Johnson with a coach he did not hire. And Adam Gase is a pretty unpopular figure within the Jets fan base, as we discussed yesterday. While Woody's been over in the United Kingdom, his brother's been running the team And the Johnson brothers are kind of unpredictable, but one of the things that kind of sticks out is that Woody is much more sensitive to public pressure than his brother is when he makes big decisions. So if the Jets don't have a good year, it could be, you know, that that, there could be a a lot of pressure coming from the fan base. And if Woody Johnson is back, that might not bode well for Adam Gase. Uh, So, you know, there's a lot of. There are a lot of lots of questions about the future of this franchise, and I look at the off season Joe Douglas had. This was really his first full. Off, this was really his first off season with the Jets because Mike McCagnin was fired after the draft last year, and the Jets let Mike McCagnin. This you know sometimes you'll see teams make a change after the draft. Uh, the, you know the Bills let go of Doug Whaley after the draft a few years ago. But this was a situation where the Jets let McCagnin spend a record amount of money in free agency. I think the Jets gave out something like $120 million in guaranteed money. And then you fire the general manager. And that's just a move that leaves you scratching your head. And it's a move that shows you – it's a move that, as you said, Kyle, shows that everybody was not on the same page, that there was no clear direction in this franchise. Now, the Jets brought in Joe Douglas, and Douglas and Gase had worked together in the past, and they had a pretty good working relationship. So I do get the feeling that these are, you know, Adam Gase is not for everybody. I get the feeling that Douglas and Gase kind of have the same vision. At the same time, when I look at what Douglas did this past offseason, it does kind of feel like he was maybe hedging his bets a little bit because the Jets were not big spenders in free agency. And... They gave out a lot of short-term contracts. In fact, almost all the contracts they gave out were either one-year deals or they were multi-year deals, but structured in a way that the Jets could cut these players after one year, if necessary, with minimal dead money. Pierre Desir came to the Jets on a one-year contract. They re-signed Brian Poole on a one-year contract. They signed George Fant to tackle, uh... On a multi-three-year deal, but they can cut him after this year only two million dollars in dead money. They re-signed Alex Lewis, who was a favorite of Adam Gase. Multi-year deal, but they can cut him after this year only $1.6 million in dead money. They can uh Brashad Perryman signs on a one-year deal. So there's lots of flexibility. And there's also flexibility in the sense that the guys that McCagnan signed in the 2019 offseason, after this year, they can be cut without a prohibitive amount of dead money. If the Jets cut Le'Veon Bell after the season, it's only $4 million. If they cut uh, Jamison Crowder after the season, only $1 million in dead money. So Douglas has set himself up with a lot of financial flexibility this offseason, and part of me wonders whether he doesn't want to commit to a roster without knowing whether Gase is going to be the coach long-term. And the way the Jets have structured their organization since 2015 is that the general manager and the head coach both report directly to the owner. Now, will Douglas have a say in whether Gase stays or not? I'm sure the ownership will listen to him, but that decision ultimately falls with ownership. And the final thing I would note is that when Douglas was hired, he was not taking the the job without getting a six-year contract because, and part of that was due to all of the instability in the organization. You know, he wanted to make sure that he would be he would still have a job when Woody Johnson came back, since Woody Johnson did not hire him, but You also cannot discount the idea that maybe Douglas demanded a six-year deal because he knew that now he was signed for longer than Adam Gase was. And if things did not work out with Gase, maybe that that he he would get a chance to build a team with the coach of his choice, even though he and Gase reportedly do have a good relationship. So I think that there's a lot unsettled right now, and the way Douglas has operated has kind of suggested that. He might be looking past this season because he's not sure whether Gase and he are going to be working together for the long haul.
2: Good stuff, John. Rockauto.com is a family business. It's been serving auto parts customers online for the past 20 years. Whether you're looking for an engine control module, brake parts, tail lamp, or motor oil, rockauto.com has everything you need in one easy to navigate catalog. And best of all, Prices are the same whether it's for professionals or do-it-yourselfers. Why would you pay twice as much for the same parts? So visit rockauto.com now and see all the parts available for your car or truck, whether it's your classic or your daily driver. And write locked on in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know we sent you. Great selection, low prices, all of the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com
3: Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: Continuing this AFC East ultimate crossover series. I'm going to bring the microphone back to Mike and Mike host of locked on Patriots. I know that there's a a little bit of animosity here from earlier in the show. So I want to give you an opportunity to take out your frustrations on, on uh, my misspokenness and tell us (laughs) where you feel, the New England, pay, or where the Miami Dolphins stack up in the AFC East in 2020, the floor is yours.
0: <laughs> uh, I assure you it's all in good fun. Uh you know it hey, you know what? There's always an element of truth in every rib. So you know what? If there weren't investigations surrounding the team that I happen to cover, wouldn't be so funny. So no, do do, do not worry about that. Just uh keep watching over your shoulder. No, I'm only kidding, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no. The New England Patriots, in terms of where they stack up in this division, I think I've tipped my hand, and I think we all have throughout the course of the week here, and I've thoroughly enjoyed getting a lot of different um opinions. Not only what you guys feel, uh, what uh, in the fate of this division, but also what our fan bases feel in the fate of this division. Look, I think the Miami Dolphins are a very intriguing team. Uh, they came up to New England last December and essentially ruined the, uh, you know, the, the party of the Patriots getting the first round by for a number of years. Uh, I think a lot of people expected that to happen, and quite frankly, it didn't. Uh, and that was a lot of it was because I think the Patriots may have not played their best game, but I give a lot of credit to the Miami Dolphins for coming up here and beating them in both sense of, uh, of uh, both phases of football. I mean, there's no question about it. I think they played a better game and I think they were more equipped to be able to handle that. And uh, that a lot of that credit needs to go to Brian Flores and the guys that he put out on the team that bought into his system and that are willing to, uh, to go that extra mile. I think Miami's ceiling at this point, and I've said this yesterday and we've said this earlier on in this week is probably third in this division. Now that's not to say that Miami can't get hot or catch lightning in a bottle and be able to rattle off some victories. We've seen teams do it before where they were not highly touted in the off season. And for some reason things come together and they're able to prove that. I think Miami is in a better position than the jets right now to be able to surprise in this division because of the coaching. Uh, I'm a big fan of Brian. Flores. Uh, Again, I I think his style and the player buy in that he gets in Miami is greater than what Adam Gaze is going to get in New York. So, based on that, I give them uh, their uh, just due as being a potential sleeper because of the talent they've put on the field. But ultimately, when I look at the four teams in this division, Kyle, I see. Probably the Bills being right now in the driver's seat because of the continuity that they have and the talent they have on both sides of the ball and uh, the relationship that I think Josh Allen can develop with Stefan Diggs gives him the ability to, uh, to treat that as something that will be a productive relationship for them. Again, the new England Patriots have bill Belichick as their head coach. It's tough to go against the team that has that right off the bat. You add in cam Newton, all of a sudden adding a different dimension To that offense. And now you're looking at RPOs being a part of the Patriots game plan, something that Josh McDaniels has not been able to implement as offensive coordinator in quite a number of years. That dynamic, I think, is going to make this team a little bit different uh, offensively than what teams are used to seeing. And ultimately, their defense is still going to be their strength, as I said in the previous segment. They have regressed a little bit, I think, in the interior of the defensive line, maybe a little bit in the linebacker position, but that secondary is still as strong as you can possibly find, and they're enough to be able to keep them among the elite uh, teams in the uh, in the country. So right now, I look at Miami as being a team that I really love what they've done, building the secondary, building the defense. I think offensively, they have a chance to be exciting as well. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are talking enough about uh, the potential of Tua Tagovail being able to become the quarterback of this team. But even if they stick with Ryan Fitzpatrick, he's proven he can win in the AFC East. That's not necessarily a bad thing, Miami fans. If Ryan remains the uh, the, uh, the quarterback of this team for the foreseeable future, he can win games and we've seen him do it. Um, so I look for Miami to be right now third in this division. Uh, they obviously, if things regress and they just don't progress the way we had hoped, it could end up being a bottom uh, you know, division uh, um, finish this year if the Jets are able to get hot. But I just don't see either one of those teams being able to overtake either the Patriots or the Bills, all things being equal.
2: Now, Joe, you and I have spent a lot of time working through our predictions over on draft dudes over the past couple of weeks. Uh, But I did impress uh, and insist a little bit when it came to the dolphins. And I I do have an optimistic (laughs) viewpoint of the team. So I want to give you uh, an uninterrupted segment, which with you and I hosting a a podcast separately together, it's going to be very difficult for me to sit here and keep my mouth shut, but I'm going to do it. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your, unfiltered, uninterrupted by Kyle Crabb's perspective on the 2020 Miami Dolphins.
3: All right, Kyle, mute that, Mike. Uh, right. So I got to be honest with you. I, I really do like a lot of what's happening here with this Miami Dolphins team. I just in the last segment talked about the the parallels in, in terms of how this team is being built to the Bills and uh, a recipe that I, I've seen firsthand being successful. And um, this roster, this depth chart is markedly better than it was last year i mean brian flores was dealing with fringe roster worthy players in the league and playing them in prominent spots across his starting lineup and that's a lot different this year the dolphins went out and were very aggressive in improving the football team and and i think it starts with the defense and and getting that right and getting guys that fit like Shaq Lawson, bringing in emmanuel agba drafting You know, Raekwon Davis, who is a tailor made uh, Brian Flores type defensive lineman with long arms and heavy hands to get a guy like. Uh, Kyle Van Noy uh, in this linebacking core and use his versatility, same with the Landon Roberts, that's going to allow them to do so much more in terms of matchup specific things that have made, you know, Belichick defenses and Flores defenses great for so long. And he's got some personnel that he can play with here in terms of chess pieces. And then, you know, you got to love what they have there in the secondary. And of course the young talented player in Noah Igbenogany to go with Byron Jones, who was one heck of a signing, one of the best man coverage corners in the league, one of the best tackling corners in the league and so um you know you you have to like what they have there in the secondary in in a, a pass happy NFL you you've got dudes that can match up on the back end and then offensively you know it's all about whenever Tua is inserted into this lineup but I love what they've been able to do to make this a comfortable situation for him I, I was very high on Tua um in in the draft process and and loved him as a prospect thought he was a high I high, high first round caliber quarterback, and now he goes into a situation that I think is beautiful for him with Chan Gailey as the offensive coordinator, uh, implementing the horizontal spread, getting the ball out of his hands quickly, but then complementing that with a power rushing attack that has these massive dudes up front with a good back in Jordan Howard and a really good complimentary back in Matt Breida to do the pass catching stuff out of the backfield in, in, in this horizontal spread. So, you know, can they get better on the offensive line? Sure. Can they have a little bit more juice at receiver? Sure. But this rebuild's not complete. And I, I really like where it's at right now, all things considered. Now, here's my challenge for this Dolphins team. And, and, and if this was a normal offseason, I would be nervous about the Dolphins being able to make some noise here and and really challenge and, and, and be a disruptive pesky team in this AFC landscape and AFC East landscape. But I just feel like there's so many new pieces here. We're probably talking about, Roughly 10 new starters for this football team, a new defensive coordinator, a new offensive coordinator and a fair amount of new assistant coaches as well. As uh, you know, I think I think it was probably difficult for Brian Flores in his first year as head coach to hire that staff, given he was coming off of a Super Bowl win with the Patriots. And, you know, he's the last guy to have his opportunity to hire a staff. And so he's probably still massaging uh, that group and getting the guys that he wants, uh, to, you know, be his core staff moving forward. But, you know, there is a lot of turnover with coaching and personnel that, you know, while I think it's upgrades and I, I like the, the, the moves that were made both from a roster perspective and a coaching staff perspective, you know, it's, I don't know that this is the right off season for this to come together for them to really be a top two team in the AFC East. So I do like them as a third place team. Uh, in this division, and I think you you think about the games last year that the Bills played the Dolphins. I know the Bills won by two scores, uh, at least in both games, but those games were much tighter than those scores indicated, and and the Dolphins were right there. And you think about Brian Flores and how aggressive he was last year uh, as a coach overall and, and now doing that with more talent. You know, there's a lot to be excited about, and I think you know there's a lot to be nervous about with this team in 2021 with a ton of draft capital still. At a, at a fair amount of cap space to continuing to to build this roster. And I think that's the year where I think they're probably most likely to be a contender in the AFC East, but for 2020, I think they're third.
1: This lockdown podcast is brought to you by home chef. Now that the novelty of the new year has dwindled down, how are your resolutions coming? One of mine was to order less takeout cook more at home, but I'll be honest. I haven't been consistent. That is until I found home chef home chef provides fresh ingredients, Free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com/slash locked on. That's homechef.com/slash locked on for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com/slash locked on. Must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. And John,
2: I'll pass the microphone to you as far as getting uh, the New York Jets' perspective on on where the Miami Dolphins stack up amidst the contenders here in the AFC East.
4: Yeah, I'll try not to repeat what uh, Mike and Joe said already, because I mostly agree with all of their points. I think the Dolphins are at the beginning stages of executing what looks like a really solid plan on paper. And I'll tell you, like watching this from a Jets perspective, I can't count how many times since I've been watching the Jets, they've bounced between like seven and ten wins. And they've always been kind of like mediocre where I've just been saying, come on, just like tear it all down so you can build a stronger foundation. So I really respect what the Dolphins did. And I have nothing but respect for Brian Flores. Typically, when a team has a bad year and like somebody says, oh, that coach really overachieved getting them to six and 10 or seven and nine, I kind of roll my eyes. This is an exception because. I think Brian Flores did an amazing job to get that Dolphins team to 5-11 and last year because that was not a team with five-win talent. And I really like the hiring of Chan Gailey. And this is a bit of a controversial statement in the Jets fan base, but I think Chan Gailey is one of the most underrated offensive minds in the NFL of the last few decades. And let me clarify, underrated is not the same thing as best. I'm not putting Chan Gailey in the ranks of Andy Reid or Kyle Shanahan. But I think people don't appreciate the influence he's had on the, on offensive strategy in the NFL. If you go back to the 1990s, he was on a Pittsburgh, a Pittsburgh coaching staff with Ron Earhart, which was one of the first teams in the league that started flooding the field with receivers on passing downs, four and five receivers. And, you know, you look at what the saints are doing with Taysom Hill um, those Steelers teams, you know, different, they're different players, but the St- those Steelers teams with Gailey kind of use Cordell Stewart in a similar way where he was an all-purpose guy. So Gailey's a very creative, innovative guy who thinks outside the box. I like matching him with Tua Takavailoa. I think after a season where you overachieve by winning five games, it's very tempting to keep the same coaching staff. In place, but I I like the decision to move on from Chad O'Shea, especially if you're going with a younger quarterback. I think Gailey systems easier to pick up, probably easier to pick up for a young quarterback than O'Shea's was because my understanding is O'Shea's was a little bit more complicated. So I like the fact that Flores was authoritative enough to make a decision like that. Um, You know, I think Joe just alluded to all the draft picks, all the draft capital, lots of young talent on this team lots of young talent that will be coming in in the future and I was a bi- I was also a big Tua fan you know you look at, it's it's always difficult to project quarterbacks but you know the things you look for in a prospect any quarterback I think once you reach the NFL is going to be able to hit a pass from a clean pocket if his first reads open so the things i look for are you know can you manipulate a defender with your eyes can you throw uh, can you throw guys open can you make plays when the pocket's a little messy Even if you don't do it all the time, are you capable of doing those things? And I think Tua passes all of those tests. Um, I like the way they built up the secondary, especially at the corner position. Uh, In my view, there's no position on defense that loses you games faster through poor play than corner. So I like where the Dolphins are heading. I'm not sure... Like the other guy, I'm not sure that they're there with New England or Buffalo just yet. I think it's maybe Dolphins and Jets neck and neck for third place in in the division. But I will throw in a caveat here is that I did not think the Dolphins could win five games last year. And many times in the NFL, when a team arrives, it happens far quicker than you expect it to. So I do think that there are pieces there where the Dolphins could conceivably put things together this year maybe have put together a winning record. Uh, but w- I think it's probably more likely that they'll be competing for third with the Jets.
2: And, and I'll put my own spin on this to finish. I think all of you guys made terrific points regarding the Dolphins and Brian Flores and his impact. And and, and Brian Flores, as the CEO of the Dolphins football operations if you will i think that's the biggest difference john you alluded to kind of the purgatory that you're in is one of these middling teams that's constantly chasing new england over the past two decades and oh we're a couple players away let's keep spending oh well now it's time to transition now we'll go get a young quarterback and we'll try and have a roster ready around him for the first time the dolphins the in the entirety of owner steven ross who bought the team in 2000 And eight, he became or 2009, he became the majority owner of the team. Uh, The 2008 year with Bill Parcells was the last time the Dolphins exercised a rebuild. And then they kind of hit their plateau and they tried to spend their way through it for years and years and years and years. So to have somebody who is a hire in Brian Flores, who is not chasing after the next Sexy offensive mind like the Dolphins tried to do with Joe Philbin from Green Bay and then Adam Gase They chose to bring in somebody who had The quote-unquote it factor or intangibles factor So I hear a lot of questions from Dolphins fans Are you concerned about the lack of continuity and the fact that they lost both offensive and defensive coordinator this past offseason? It's worth noting But if you have the right person atop the organization who is able to impress and imprint his vision on how to coach, how to teach, and how to approach a game, that is more important than having the right offensive or defensive coordinator because everybody has their role to play. And I think that is why I do have an optimistic outlook for the Dolphins this year. I'm hoping and expecting somewhere between seven wins, and 9 wins in an absolute best case scenario somewhere around 500. Do I think that's enough to win the AFC East this year? No, I do not. I think the Dolphins are a year away from seriously considering but I do, uh, con- contending in this division, but I do think it is a note that entering the offseason, the Miami Dolphins best position group on the offensive side of the football was the wide receiver group. They did not invest in that group at all. And now that we are on the other side of that, minus maybe the offensive tackle position where we may see Robert Hunt, who was a second round pick, playing inside at guard, wide receiver might now be one of the bottom tier position groups on the offensive side of the football for the Dolphins. They chose to pick and choose their battles and address and prioritize the trenches on both sides of the ball and the secondary. This is not, Rome was not built in a day, and neither will the Miami Dolphins, but they are certainly doing things in a different way than they have done them before. It's a source of optimism, and I expect the Dolphins to contend for 500 by the time this season is all said and done. I'm Kyle Krabs, joined by my great esteemed colleagues here in the AFC East, courtesy of the Locked On Network, Mike DeBate, Joe Marino, John Butchko. We hope you enjoyed this AFC East ultimate crossover throughout the course of this week. Hope you guys enjoy your weekends, and we'll all be talking to you all again very soon.